0: still process last year. Well, mm-hmm. I'm still
1: <clears> trying to <throat> do it. I don't think we will. There was a lot last year. <laughs> I think we're, we've embarked on, on a two and a half year podcast project to not deal with our
2: feelings.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to How the Yes Was Won, a podcast about the Eighth Amendment. This is our last episode and we're taking it as an opportunity to tell some of the stories that we loved but that just didn't make the final cut for the main series. Instead of leaving them on the cutting room floor, we thought we'd stitch them together and release them in this bonus quilt episode. Well, yeah,
3: I mean, do you want want some dirt?
0: Do you want want the gossip?
1: (laughs) We started this project right after the referendum and spent many, many months researching and trying to learn how to make a podcast. One of our first struggles was figuring out who we needed to speak with. We knew we needed to talk to people who'd been involved at every step of the way. Our first port of call was Eddie Conlin, who we'd all canvassed with during the 2018 campaign. He referred us to Mary Gordon, who referred us to Ursula Barry, who referred us to Anne Connolly. But we were stuck for someone to speak to about the X case specifically. At the March for Choice in 2018, we'd brought our little pocket microphone and were speaking to people on the street about what they felt the next steps were and how they were feeling. Deirdre and I stopped a woman who was running to the start of the march And suddenly she started speaking about her activism in the late 80s, getting the phone number out, and how she'd been one of the people who organised the X-Case March. It was fate. We couldn't believe our luck. It was, of course, the wonderful Mary Ryder. Here's a great story from her that we just couldn't fit in anywhere else.
0: It was the United Nations, they do the United Nations decade for children, the United Nations year of the something or other. And this was the United Nations decade for women. I'm pretty sure if it was 79, the, it came in. It would have been about 1980 or 81. Charlie Howey was prime minister and he was the guest of honour at the United Nations decade for women. Anyway, um, he was the guest of honour. But what had happened in the previous couple of weeks, because as the abortion and contraception, we that was our focus. We would find anything that was happening and try and publicise it and say how ridiculous the law was. And there was a story on. Gay Byrne is a bit like I don't know what program there is now. What program would be that people say Joe Duffy, right? Gay Byrne, who Joe Duffy trained, his whole entire life with him. But anyway, Gay Byrne had a piece on the program. People would ring in, and this woman rang in really upset. What should I do? She said that herself and her husband went out for the night, left their either son or daughter, I can't remember which it was, to babysit the younger kids. When they came back, the girl and her boyfriend were on the couch having sex. And when the parents, the parents were horrified, absolutely. They were about 15, 16. The parents were horrified. But the girl said, I think it was their daughter, and she said, but look, we're using contraception. They were using cling film, right? Which, right, because contraception just wasn't easily available, but this was the idea that you could protect yourself. Here they were at least being somewhat inventive, knowing that. But Oh, just the idea of it. Anyway, that was the story on the Gay Burn show. And that became... Going down to buy the Kling film for the weekend, you know, this is it. What are you going to do? What are you going to wrap in the Kling film? So when Charlie Hawhey was speaking and it was very shortly after the 79 legislation on contraception and it was, you know, the, the whole thing was that that was dubbed to be the Irish solution to the Irish problem, right? So we got cling film and we sat. So I sat in a row with as many people as we could get in a row. And other rows up here and other people got up and we passed the cling film down and we had written on it an Irish solution to an Irish problem. And as soon as he, we didn't say a word, as soon as he began to speak, we all stood up and held it up. And people walked to the front with a big placard saying an Irish solution to an Irish problem. This is not good enough. You know, the contraceptive bill is not good enough. And there were great photographs and the photographs are actually in the United Nations book on the women of the decade. But it was, and we never said a word. And you know what? He didn't miss a beat and he never stopped his speech.
1: Our next story is from Anne Connolly. Before the 1983 referendum, the Well Woman Clinic was able to operate with very little interaction from the Guards. Anne told us of two visits she did have with the Guards.
3: Yes, it was interesting. On occasions... we had we had two types of visits one was from the the, Garda- the in the local police station which was Harcourt Street in those days and uh, and the other was from we call them the vice squad they were the vice something or other in, in Dublin castle and they were both They both had a role. So with regard to the local Garda station, I think we probably got about three visits. And at one stage, I was asked to go up to the the station in Harcourt Terrace. And I ended up spending about an hour and a half with about 10 of their guardi taking me through everything that we did, asking me all sorts of questions about contraception, about how to access it, about what the story was, and, and just divulging very personal stories themselves about their difficulties. So I have to say they couldn't have been more sympathetic and, and supportive. And then I suppose more Slightly more ominously, or I was for the first time, I suppose, concerned. the The day before the nineteen eighty three referendum on abortion, sorry, that's not true. About a week before, a few days before, anyway. The I got a visit from this this guy from the vice squad, as we as we call them, on foot of a complaint, and for some reason it was slightly more serious, and I think understandably, from their point of view, given the political climate and the referendum, they were treating it slightly more seriously. But we went through the same discussion as we'd had before. And I remember smiling at the end because he was a very nice guy. And I said, you know how I am going to abuse your visit today? And he said, I know. And of course, I got on to the media immediately and said, we've been raided by the police. on the eve of the referendum and that it was putting at risk people's right to access to contraception and he he just laughed and left.
1: Mary Gordon told us about canvassing for a no vote in the 1983 referendum. It's a sharp example of what pro-choice activists were up against facing against the influence of the church on people at the time.
0: I remember there were a couple of great women in Ballyfermot when we were canvassing and they were saying, yeah, no, I'll vote against that, I'll vote against that. And we went back the night before the actual referendum and, and met the same women and they said, oh, the priest told us uh, last Sunday we had to vote, we had to vote, yes. So we're going to. So it was this. I, it, I mean, the the impact of the pulpit on the vote was as striking as that. It was a, really, really made a difference.
1: Rural activists in 2018 had the added difficulty of not being anonymous in their campaigning. This often came with personal confrontations, and sometimes the church itself, as Mary McDermott tells.
4: It was just. It was, just, but it was interesting because. Obviously, the in the lead up to the referendum, we knew that it was more likely young people would vote, yes, and that the older generation might vote. No. And my father had um, surprised me a few months previously um, when I told him I was heavily involved in the Together for Yes campaign or in the pro-choice campaign. He His attitude was, sure, it's nobody's business but the woman's. And he was actually way more pro-choice than what I had given him credit for, considering we live in a rural, rural part of County Roscommon. And in the lead up, because I was going home every weekend, in the lead up to the referendum, he was ringing me all the time and checking in with me, how's it going, and and he would have asked one of the, the weeks before the referendum, how do you think it's going to go? And I would have said, well, we think we're pretty confident that the young people will vote yes, but it's your generation that we are afraid of. And i said, well, how are you going to fix that? And I said, well, if we got someone of your generation to say they're voting yes. And he was like, who? And I said, well, you, you're a rural man in the countryside, runs a pub, has a farm, you know, it, it would be interesting, I think, for a lot of people to hear you saying you'd vote yes. And he said he would. So he went on um, the 6-1 news the Friday before the referendum and spoke with Kieran Maluli because there were, they were doing a, a special piece on Roscommon because of the interest in the, the referendum in 2015. And Kieran Malooly and his team came out to my little village and showed that it's a church and a pub and that's it. And went into my dad who was sitting behind the bar and spoke to him and dad spoke about why he was voting yesterday. It's between the woman and the doctor and nobody else. And in the days following that, our local parish priest kept appearing at the house. And now he was a new parish priest. Um, he'd been there maybe only a year. Um, so we hadn't had much interactions with him. Um He kept arriving at the house. First time he arrived, dad wasn't there. Second time, dad was just finishing food. Um, That's it. Why do you want to speak? Because I'm here to change your mind. You have to vote no. And my father said, well, I'm not for changing. So you might be better off talking to somebody else. And I've got jobs to do. And best of luck. And the priest pretty much demanded a meeting with my father the next day, which was the day before the referendum. And the My father agreed, but my father once again said, you might be better off talking to people who are undecided because I'm not going to change my mind. So my father welcomed him into the house the day before the referendum. Again, reiterated, my mind's made up. It's not for changing and that you should maybe go speak to somebody else. And the priest said, no, he was going to change my father's mind. He took out his phone. He showed my father an abortion. And my father, which I'm quite proud of, was able to say that size of that fetus, that was a wanted child and that woman is in distress. I wouldn't have thought my dad would have known the difference between uh, what uh, an early stage abortion looks like and a later stage abortion. And the he, my dad once again said, I'm not going to change my mind. You know, I think you should go after 10 minutes. And the priest wouldn't leave. The priest threatened my father, that he wasn't going to give him communion. He threatened him with literal hell. He said that he accused my father of being a murderer. He he, he just continued with this. He, he kind of got and, you know, he kind of got a little bit kind of, it was a power thing, really. My father said, if you don't leave, um, I'm going to bring up stuff that you don't want me to discuss. And the priest wouldn't leave. So my father brought up um, stuff like the tune Babies the clerical sex abuse towards children and women. He brought up the Magdalene laundries. Um, the priest's attitude to all of this was, well, that's in the past. And my father's you will know, it's not. It's still going on. What about women's mental health if they're being forced to continue pregnancies that they don't want to? And the priest's attitude was, ah, mental health. Just really... You, My father would have said to him, you, you lack compassion, you don't have any understanding. It went on for 40 minutes and at 40 minutes or 45 minutes, even maybe my father instructed him that he was now to leave the property and that he was welcome back into the house anytime, time, never to bring up this discussion again. My father was still going for it, yes. And as he was leaving, there was a, a, a neighbour in doing some work in the house And my parents were converting a downstairs room into a bedroom and the priest grabbed him on the way and said, you'll do the right thing now tomorrow, won't you? You'll do the right thing now tomorrow. I will indeed, Father. I will indeed. I'll be voting yes with Sean. Priest should have been out of women's vaginas years ago. And the priest looked apparently like he was going to like burn them and the two men in their 60s and 70s walked him out to the door the priest was shouting back getting into his car about hell and dad was saying hell can wait till tomorrow night father till 10pm tomorrow night I have to canvass everyone in my phone book for a yes vote Sure enough, our local polling station went from having the highest percentage no vote in all of Roscommon in two thousand and fifteen. There was one hundred and four votes cast in last year's referendum, and there was sixty yes and forty four no. So we had pretty much swapped the, the the demographic, and it was just such to me. It is it it's. It's an indicator of the difference between central Dublin and rural Roscommon. You have a priest who is a new parish priest, so he's not well established, taking on what I call the parish publican or one of the parish publicans um, who's been there with his family for 40 years, um, but still felt that he had the authority, the priest did, to go in and essentially try and bully my father into changing his vote and failing. And I just think there's something in that that's so... Telling of Ireland in 2018 that it felt like it was from the 1950s, but that's the way the church rules in certain areas. And our local bishop in Elfin, Kevin Doran, would have been very outspoken about wanting a no vote and what should happen to people if they vote yes and different things. So we suspect that Kevin would have had a word with the local priest. We've since had interactions with the local priest, and it's been fine.
1: Many of the activists we spoke to for the 83 campaign mentioned the change of focus in 2018. The opposition to the Eighth Amendment in 83 mainly made their arguments on the basis of legality. In 2018, it was not only about women's rights, but people actually cared about women's stories and were willing to listen to people's experiences to make sure others didn't have to relive them. For the activists that were there at the beginning, this was a sign that Ireland was a different place to the one that they had grown up in. Here's Ursula Barry.
5: I think one of the uh, the highest level things that are, that are, it struck me in the most recent campaign was, I was trying to remember the detail of it, but it was one of the debates on the television when a young woman who was going for an abortion and she was say, telling that on, on the television and she was saying, but I, I don't fit into any of the categories, you know, of, of any of the categories of under this circumstance, under that circumstances, I just, uh, I'm not ready to go through with this pregnancy either time. But she just was, she just in the middle of all this debate that was going on in in, in that, that kind of relatively abstract way in which some of those television debates can happen. She just stood up and, and there she was and I'm 18 and I'm going to Liverpool at the weekend and this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, uh, I don't care what you're, you're saying about this is the circumstance and that's the circumstance this is what I'm doing and that's what I'm going to do and I'm not alone and there's lots of other of women just like me and she just stopped and, but she was visually identified but it wasn't just at a meeting, it was in the television you know, anyway it was just one of those things that, that, would, that would never ever have happened in my lifetime, you know that somebody would do that, and was so brave, and she was so young, she was only like seventeen or eighteen, and she was heading off the next day or something like that. Anyway, and I mean, you know, it was really brave because like the, the level of intimidation that can happen to you if you're identified like that, a young person, and she wasn't even part of a group going in anywhere, because I talked to the, um, I actually talked to the television RTE people afterwards because I was worried about her. And had she just, had anybody made sure she was okay? And any of those, did they have contact information for her? Because they should put her in contact with services and stuff like that. Uh, and they were saying, ah, yeah, yeah. I said, look, you know, you have a responsibility in, in these situations. You can't just, whatever, you know. Anyway, but, you know, um, anyway, that was a bit of a high.
1: Not strictly related to the themes of our podcast, but something that's important nonetheless. In 2018, the Pope came to Ireland, again. Three of us on the team ended up at an impromptu protest as the Pope mobile drove through Dublin. Some of the women we met that day were survivors of the mother and baby homes. We asked Catherine Coffey O'Brien what she had to say about the day and what repeal meant for her. In this audio, Catherine refers to Catherine Zappone, who was the then minister for children. The audio quality isn't the best, but stick with it. I just want to see justice
2: closure. I want to see healing. I know a lot of old. We're getting older. And Minister Zappone is... Uh, I thought when we got a minister in like Minister Zappone, she'd make a fierce positive impact. I'm deluded by her. And I'm disgusted by her. Because all at the moment she's doing is she's playing a waiting game. And she, her legacy could have been very positive. She could have addressed these issues regarding uh, the mother and baby homes, the unmarked graves, um, especially tombs and Catherine Corus who I have great respect for but our minister for children she's for children and she's not representing children of Ireland neither the ones from the past or the future or the present ones so I'm also here as well because of John um, unmarked graves Marie, the children and the women in those <laughs> graves they were ignored and rejected by their own country their own government and now they're being they're being excluded again and rejected by being left there and there's no there's no dignified there's no it's like they're just left there and I it's horrible that's why I'm here and I'd like to say I just met these random people today and they're brilliant and um, we had a great time we weren't attacked by anyone thank god thank god um, I know yeah bit of a contradiction in terms of that's a happy people it's a habit Literally, um, no, seriously, I just want to say thanks to everyone and be honest about it. Repeat opened oh, my eyes on a lot of things, and I'd like to thank everyone that was involved in Repeat the as well because it's about choice. I didn't have a choice while I was born in, I didn't have a choice growing up, and I'm um, repeating the the door about choice in Ireland.
1: So, there you have it. There were lots more stories that didn't make it in, and far more activists than we could ever hope to speak to for this podcast. We were lucky enough to record with just a few of them. We hope you enjoyed them as much as we did. The History of Repeal is one of people sharing their own stories, but those stories can only inspire change when people listen to them. So thank you for listening here. Special thanks to everyone who spoke to us for this podcast. If you like this podcast, we'd love if you shared with your friends. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on the socials at HowTheYesWasWon. Also, we encourage you to reach out to your TDs in relation to the upcoming review on legislation if you're based in Ireland. For those outside of Ireland, please consider donating to the Abortion Support Network. There's a link in the show notes where you can donate to support their clients who need abortions or go to asn.org.uk. How The Yes Was Won was researched, produced and edited by Deirdre Kelly, Aisling Dolan, that's me. Emma Callaghan, Davy Quinlivan and Tara Loney. Additional recording support from FINDWIRE. Thanks for listening.